And at some point, I took a psychedelic. And as soon as I did that, I realized, yeah, there is something else. We don't have to be caught in this feeling of aloneness and separation. And uh, life started to change at that point. Hello and welcome, fellow human. My name is Zachary Stockhill, and you are listening to Humans in Love, a podcast that looks at culture, relationships, and personal development from unconventional perspectives. Join me as I dig into the question of how people like you and I might get more out of life and love. Thanks for being here. Hello and Happy New Year, friends. Zach Stockhill here, and I am excited to be podcasting again. It's been a while. I know the last time I spoke to you was in November, and I'm excited to be doing this again and ringing in my first episode of January 2019. I hope you really enjoyed your holiday. I hope you had a lot of good meals and maybe drank a little too much some nights and had a grand old time. I certainly did. I've been traveling quite a bit actually over the past couple months. I've been spending time in Bangkok and Pangna in the south of Thailand. went to Taiwan, I went to Hong Kong, and uh, I plan on doing a lot more travel in 2019. So just so you know, if you're on social media, if you're into that, you can follow me on Instagram at ZF Stockhill, or if you're American, at ZF Stockhill. On the note of travel in 2019, I plan on uh, doing a bit of experimenting with the podcast this year. And one of those experiments is going to involve more solo podcasts, so more podcasts where it's just me sharing my thoughts on a various topic or asking questions or whatever, kind of sharing updates. One of the perks of, you know, putting together your own podcast and learning how all that stuff works is you can look at really detailed stats. And um, it seems to be that uh, a lot of the audience, a lot of you guys like the solo podcasts. So I plan on doing more of them, and uh, even just logistically, I mean, again, I want this podcast to be sustainable. I know I say that over and over, but I mean it. And one of the ways I think I can make the podcast sustainable this year is doing more solo shows because I plan on traveling quite a bit. So this way, I'll still be able to bring regular episodes to you, even if it's just me speaking. But on today's podcast, I'm very excited to have my first guest of 2019, His name is Raghu Marcus. Raghu is the host of the fantastic podcast. It's called Mind Rolling. He's also the host of Here and Now with Ram Dass, which is another one of my absolute favorite podcasts. Ram Dass, of course, is one of the most influential spiritual teachers in the West and has been for about the past 50 years or so. And uh, Raghu is a really interesting human being. He's been working and traveling with Ram Dass for several decades, basically since the 1970s. And he's had a really interesting life story, uh, life adventures, and yeah, he's one of my favorite podcasters and a deeply thoughtful, insightful, and inspiring human being. We share love for travel and India and spirituality, and in today's episode of Humans in Love, Raghu and I get into all of that. We talk about travel and politics and ego dissolution and some of the great teachers that Raghu has met along the way. And we really cover a lot of ground, so I'm really excited that this is the first episode of 2019. Can't wait to share it with you. Before I get started, again, looking at the stats and the numbers and stuff, the good news is the podcast is growing. 
I have a good little core audience and I plan on building on that. The bad news is I don't have the ratings and reviews that I'm hoping for, given the numbers of the podcast so far. So if you haven't already, please take 30 seconds out of your day. Be sure to subscribe to Humans in Love and leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice. It really means a lot to me and it really gives me the motivation to keep going and it also helps to spread the word. Without any further ado, I present to you my first conversation in 2019 with Mr. Raghu Marcus. So first off, Raghu, how was your recent trip to India? I haven't been there in a while. What's the vibe like there these days? You know, it's changing from when I was first there. It's, uh, but the, the underlying core of spirit that they have been working on for thousands of years, that's still there, you know, and it may be a little more difficult to catch, especially you got to get out of the big cities and all that. But up in the mountains, it's uh, very much intact and places where like where we did go, I did go to a place called Chitrakut. Do you know Chitrakut? I don't. You know the Ramayana? Yes. The, yeah. So in the chapter in the Ramayana where Ram gets banished to the forest with his wife Sita and his brother Lakshman, and his wife gets abducted by the demon, who take, uh, Ravana, who takes him to Sri Lanka, takes her to Sri Lanka, and he enlists the help of Hanuman, the monkey, to find her so he can retrieve her. That takes place in the forest in the middle of India, in Madhya Pradesh, called Chitrakut. And so it's just kind of like it was back then, except there's more you know, places for people to go stay to do pilgrimage. So you go to a place like that, and you still get the incredible essence of what india is for sure is travel changing for you as you get older i always like talking to fellow travelers about about that issue like do you get as excited about it are you uh, is it a little more work does it seem worth it in the same way that it, maybe it used to like how how has it changed for you oh definitely worth it it, you know, you get older, so things get tougher just in comfort kind of thing, and India has no comfort, you know. So traveling there still always was and still is a little bit tricky sometimes. Like we went, I tried to avoid it by flying from Delhi to Allahabad, which is a major city in India, and then thought, well, it's a three-and-a-half-hour drive, no problem, to Chitrakut from Allahabad. Well, that road was one of the worst roads I've ever been on in India. <laughs> I mean, the whole trip was like, no, 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 like that, you know, your heart in your mouth. Uh, so, you know, shit like that goes on. But uh, it, it all gets washed away by the extraordinary um, connectivity that you get and freedom. You know, suddenly you're not in your own environment with you know, the kind of billboards and the TV and, you know, all that stuff goes away. And you're kind of, it's a very freeing atmosphere. It's also completely, uh, you know, out of control. There's, it's, 
there is no, I mean, there are police there and stuff, but shit goes on there. You never know what's going to happen next. I kind of like that chaos, actually. So yeah, you... I, I always anticipate going and thinking, okay, I can really let go. Yeah, you mentioned the billboards and stuff, too. One of the uh, th- the aspects of world travel to places that don't um, necessarily everyone speaks English, I feel like it's underrated as all the billboards and advertisements and stuff is often in a language you don't speak. So it, automatically that frees up all of this mental ram. Exactly. And yeah, it's it's a really yeah. beautiful aspect. Um, yeah. I'm in Thailand and my Thai is uh, absolute shit. So uh, I have that <laughs> uh, that luxury of not being privy to lots of the uh, the advertising and stuff going on. So it's, it's a really nice aspect yeah. of travel. What were you yeah. doing in India this time around? Were you just traveling to hang out or... No, I, it's all pretty purposeful. I mean, I've been when I do go to India, which is pretty much every year, forever. Uh, you know, I'd go to the places I was with my guru Neem Karoli Baba up in the Himalayas, and also Rishikesh and uh, Brindavan, like that. Uh, and so it's all. It has been. Uh, as I said, very purposeful. There was when Maharaji, who we, that's what we called Neem Karoli Baba, when he left in 1973, the physical body, he left us this incredible saint who had been with him for like decades named Siddhima. And so she was like a, our Indian mother and she passed not quite a year ago. And But that's who I would go and stay with her and I have tons of family from the people who took us in way back in the day Ram Das and I and Krishna Das and others so that that's my main purpose is to be with family and be in a retreat kind of atmosphere and, uh, I do every year in this case we took one of our family members uh, who is our mentor who translated for Ram Das when he first met Neem Karoli Baba uh, his name is K.K. Shah. He's an incredible being. And he had never been to Chitrakoot, and he's like a scholar of the Ramayana. Uh, and so Krishnas and I met up and took him to Chitrakoot. So that was like a beautiful uh, occasion. You've known Krishnadas since what, the early 70s? The famous, uh, famous singer. Yeah, that's very cool. The <laughs> famous singer, yeah. Well, fam- famous in certain circles, we'll say. Yeah. No, no, it's true, you know, uh, when you're talking about chant, he's the guy doing it, that's for sure. Um, yeah, we met up, uh, actually, before we went to India, we met at Bard College, and yeah, way back in the day. <laughs> and yeah, yeah, we've been, uh, we had a record company together in L.A. for almost 20 years, and doing world music, and uh, yeah, we've done a lot of stuff together, just even Kirtan, you know. We, uh, I just found a picture of us. I would drum for him. He would sing, and then he'd drum for me. I'd sing, you know, from the mid-70s, you know. So, yeah, we've been doing it a long time. And we did that. That's what we did when we were in Chitraput. A lot of kirtan. That is our path, is chant. So, so I'd like to actually go back um, before you went to uh, India for the first time. This is something I'm always curious to talk to people uh, of your vintage about the late 1960s, early 1970s. So I'm 31. Obviously, I wasn't there. Um, but it's a period of time I'm very interested in. And the way it's portrayed is this period of 
you know, enormous, you know, flower power and consciousness expansion and all of these, you know, groovy people and stuff. What are your thoughts on how, as someone who's there, what are your thoughts on how the 60s is portrayed uh, generally? And does that square with your experience of that time period? I guess the, the biggest thing is when people talk about, ah, that was just a moment in time and now we're we're older and responsible people and that just passing show in a moment and flower power and all that stuff. I think the true uh, guts of it was very real in terms of people wanting uh, to be part of a tremendous value system change, you know, and, uh, True, many people sort of fell off the wagon, got into, you know, their families, raising families and so on, and and felt like that was just, some of them, that was a wasted time. But most of the people I know who opened up to the East in particular, uh, they're all, that's an integral part of who they are and who they became and what they're doing in the world in terms of being of some service to somebody, um, whether it's just simply the people around them or someone like Krishnas who's, you know, has huge audiences that, uh, people are literally going through transformation by virtue of being part of what he does. So I think it was an important time and I think it's a mixed bag with some people feeling like, you know, that was just a lost, I was young back then and I was a hippie, but you know, that was just you know, bullshit, and basically you got to be responsible, you know, that kind of thing. And I meet many people like that. But the people I know that I went to India with are 95% have stuck with that value of trying to do make some changes to themselves internally so that they could be of some help to somebody around them. It might not be a they're not a teacher necessarily, but they are an example to the people around them in their family, friends, neighborhood, town, city, and so on. What were you like before you encountered India slash Hinduism slash a lot of the ideas that Ramdas popularized? Like, were you always someone who people would consider to be some kind of seeker, do you think, growing up in, uh, in Montreal? I was basically angry about what I saw didn't make sense. This is this is the life that we have to live to you know to abide by this kind of you know, gross commercial culture, be something so you can make money and you know, raise a family and none of it made sense to me. There must be some other purpose. So music was my thing. Is if you've heard, you know, the Mind Rolling podcast, then you, uh, you know, I talk about that a lot. <clears throat> so I, I escaped through music. I escaped this, really, what I thought was a, a onerous culture the West had, and. Uh, and at some point, and this is a common story, I took a psychedelic. 
And as soon as I did that, I realized, yeah, there is something else. We don't have to be caught in this feeling of aloneness and separation. And I, uh, life started to change at that point. Uh, that and uh, certain things that experiences I had through music. So once that happened, and once I knew that there was a way to be happy and to be more um, in tune with a, another place inside me that wasn't my head or my senses, then my whole life changed, started to change at that point. And as by the grace of the guru, uh, suddenly sitting, running a radio station, there I met Ramdas. So it was all preparation for that moment. Psychedelics were a big part of it. Music was a big part of it for me. And dissatisfaction was another bit. I was not happy as a teenager whatsoever. I could not understand why, what this unhappiness really was. So it all was perfectly uh, formed, all these different things to awaken. You mentioned anger too, and I'd like to dig into that a little more. What specifically do you think you were angry about? Was it just the general sort of um, future self that you felt like you were destined to grow into simply by fact that you were born in a Western society? Or, or where did that anger come from, do you think? Well, it started with family. Father was very angry. Came out of the Second World War, an angry person. Uh, so that... And he was always trying to mold me into a certain thing. So that was a, probably the most obvious source of it. But it was also just looking around and seeing all these automatons walking around, going to work and coming home. And, you know, it was just like, really? This is what I'm being groomed for? I don't think so. So I was a rebel. You know, so that's why I easily got in. You know, I ended up in Haight-Ashbury in 68, right? 68, 69, and therein started my whole uh, alternative, alternative uh, consciousness cultivation. But yeah, that anger was really started within my family and within seeing what was going on around me, but mostly dissatisfaction with I didn't want to become another automaton. Did psychedelics make you less angry? Well, they gave me a, a, a window into the possibility of being happy and not angry. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. In Haight-Ashbury in the, the late 60s, kind of the pinnacle of that movement, moments in time, yeah. whatever you want to call it, what, what was that scene like? I'm picturing the Grateful Dead and the, all the rest. I mean, what was that like? Yeah. And it was just like the pictures. <laughs> you walk up, hey, I, I remember getting to Hate Street, and you walk up the street, and every, you know, people just hanging by the buildings, acid, hash, you know, pot, whatever you wanted, it was all there. And I thought, wow, this is incredible, you know, because back then it was all verboten, you know. Look at it now. <laughs> There's a store every second street, you know that you can walk into and buy what you want. Uh, so, yeah, it was free freedom. It was freedom. But then it turned into a you know, really bad drug scene, you know, like hard drugs. 
you know, speed, especially speed that that destroyed hate Ashbury, speed basically, and coke. So it for a while it was flowery and nice, and then and it got messed up, as you could imagine it would because of people taking advantage and in all sorts of ways. So, but for a while there it was pretty great and fun. Uh, and that's the part that people look back on and go, okay, that was a miserable waste of time. But, uh, you know, and in some ways, you know, there was a, a lot of people getting hurt, you know, through bad drugs, through bad trips, whatever. But, uh, that was a process by which people, uh, at least encountered the idea that you could be free in a different way. So take me to, uh, the early seventies working at a radio station in Montreal how does Ramdas come into your life, and what are your first impressions of him and everything that he's talking about? Mm. Well, they wanted they they called me as the program director. He said somebody wants to for us for the station to announce Ramdas giving a lecture at McGill University, and I said, "Well, I don't know who that is." And they, oh, you know Tim Leary and Richard Alpert. Shit, yeah, I love them. Okay, we'll send over a tape so I can at least listen. You must have something recorded from a previous lecture. And they did, and I went in the studio, and it was that was a moment for me. Everything changed. I heard what I had been waiting to hear, something that made sense about who we are, what's possible, uh, and I put it on the air. I just put it on. I said, okay. I went into the DJ booth. I said, put this on. And they did. And the switchboard, got, it was the middle of the week, like in the morning. Switchboard lit up. People went nuts. They had never heard anything like this. Somebody, well, you've heard Ramdas from pre-stroke days. And back then, it's like, you know, Lenny, uh, yeah, Lenny Bruce may not be the, because he's too old, but. <laughs> I know who you're Richard Breyer. Yeah, right somebody who really could uh, not only elucidate this stuff in a way that you'd understand and be honest himself about where he wasn't and where he was, but entertaining at the same time. I mean, it was a, fan, you know, a combination that hasn't been matched, really, in all, in all this time. Uh, and then I said, okay, I, all right, let's put it on the air. And we'll announce it, but I got to meet him. So they got me arranged. I just went right over that day. And he was alone, staying in an apartment uh, in Montreal. And that encounter was, yeah, that was a life changer right there. Because I met him and he just contacted me eye to eye. And it was like there was no, I was the only person left in the universe as far as he was concerned. Total attention and caring. And isn't that what ultimately we all appreciate in terms of, you know, when you're with somebody and you're not, and you're just like right here, that's a special thing. And that, uh, in that moment, I had tremendous trust, 100% trust that he was real and everything he was saying was real. And uh, then I became a Ramdas fanatic, putting his talks up on, on rock and roll radio all the time, or on the weekends right now. And then went to, and got to India. You know, I although he said I can't tell you the name of this person, nor where he is, 
a, a number of us kind of really bothered him, shall we say. And he was going back to India, so I just followed him. I, I, I went back maybe a, two months after he went back, and the rest is history. Yeah, before we get there, I definitely want to talk about that. But I, I'd like to know more about what it was that he was saying, even g- generally, any of the general ideas or principles or themes that had this power over you. Like, w- what do you think it was? It wasn't a power over me, wasn't the right word. Connecting with me mm. is a, more of the right word. Um, basically, that there is a place in us that we can connect with in this lifetime that isn't judgmental, that isn't paranoid, that isn't separated, uh, that has wisdom, joy, love, compassion in it. And we can move into that place upon doing some work on ourselves uh, spirit by embarking on a, on a path uh, that includes the kinds of things that he had been just trained in, which was basically the eighth limb yoga, you know, not just, and yoga, not meaning physical yoga, hatha yoga, yoga, which means union, yoking with that place inside ourselves that is not our minds, not our egos, not our senses, and resides in the center of our chest. And so he suggested all of this, which, because I had taken psychedelics, I understood that there was that place. And he was detailing that place out in a way that I couldn't do for myself at that time. I didn't have a vocabulary. And um, and the other thing was the level of honesty. That's probably... One of the biggest things, talking about himself, where he had awareness through a process he called witness, to be able to see his motivations, to be able to see his encounters with people and how they were self-serving and how we are, for the most part, on a day-to-day basis involved in that uh, self-interest at the expense of everybody else. And he was able to be honest about that. And so we could all go, oh, wow, okay. I don't have to hide. That was a huge thing. So those two things, yeah. Hmm. Well, oh, by the way, yeah. by the way, just to say, sure. aside from the words, it, you know, we're also talking about um, the tone, the tone of voice, the uh, something beyond what we think I got, you know, there was another message coming in on another plane of consciousness that wasn't just about the words. Okay. The inflections, the tones, the humor, the whatever that increase this large trust thing. And that, that's a big deal with anybody, any teacher. So yeah, that was certainly something too important as part of this whole thing that got me launched. As long as we're talking about 
voices and tones, like the way you just described that reminds me of my early encounters with uh, Alan Watts, who was kind of mm. my gateway drug into a lot of this, mm. these things that you and I are both interested in. Just as an aside, have you, did you encounter Alan Watts at all back then or now, or what are your impressions of him? Yeah, back then, definitely. Uh, yeah, I loved Alan. Yeah. Uh, now, I did a podcast recently with his daughters that wrote a book of his letters. That's fantastic. Yeah, he was quite a character. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I, as far as him living what he was talking about, mm, I don't know about <laughs> that. Yeah, he was he was a bit of a scoundrel for sure from everything yeah. from everything that I've yeah. read. But uh, in my view, I'd say in my top three public speakers of all time, just uh, just extraordinary. So take me to uh, that first trip to India. And I've, I think I've heard a lot of the stories being a fan of uh, the Ram Das podcast and your own mind rolling podcast. But for people who aren't familiar, what, what was that first trip to India uh, with Ram Das like? Well, actually, uh, he couldn't find Maharaji for a few months. And then finally I hooked up with him in South India at Swami Muktananda's ashram. And then he gave me a letter then to introduce me to people in, in the Himalayas who would hook me up. So, and in fact, when I went, he wasn't there. He was doing some other stuff. So he was, he told me, oh, well, I'll be there in a week or something, whatever, a few days. So when I first met Maharaji, he wasn't there. It was me and. Krishna Das and Ramesh, a few others that you can think of now. There was maybe six people. I mean, it's extraordinary. And it's just so exotic up in the, a valley in the Himalayas, foothills of the Himalayas. The river running by, I mean, it was some idyllic kind of thing. And we were sitting, waiting for him to come out of his room in front of a bench where he would sit, a bed bench kind of thing called a tucket. Anyhow, he came out. And, and by uh, he, you mean Neem Karoli Baba? Neem Karoli Baba, yeah. And previous to that, I'd been with Swami Mukadanda at his ashram. And, and that was when I went, people were bowing down. You know, that's the thing you do in India to a holy person, you touch their feet. I couldn't get that. That was like, I had no feeling whatsoever. So Ramdas was there. And, uh, I said, you know, I don't know what to do about this because I can't really get into this. This, this like feels yucky. So he said, well, you know, it's just the look at it. It's just the, you know, the spiritual person inside of you honoring the spiritual, you know, the most down to earth terms possible. And if you still have a problem then you, it's something good to look at. There must be something inside of you, you know, some ego stuff that you got to look at. You know, I said, okay, I went back the next day, still couldn't. Uh, although Swami Muktananda asked me about where I was going, I said I was going to see Neem Karoli Baba, and he was good, good, yeah. Anyhow, so I'm sitting there waiting for Maharaji and Neem Karoli Baba to come out his door, and as soon as he did, I didn't even have a thought. There was no thought. Boom. Just, you know, in the face of this 
divine presence, you can do nothing. You can't think about what you should or shouldn't do. And, uh, and then I realized a few things just like that in the moment. Hi, God, I'm home. Oh, thank you. You know, just this feeling of like, if you're really cold and you go into a hot tub and you just let go, home kind of thing. And then uh, oh, I, I realized, oh, shit, I've known this thing, whatever, for eons before. And uh, that's an that's eternal thing, guru. And then I thought, oh, shit, that's what Ramdas was all about. I realized then that the, everything I liked and loved about Ramdas was emanating from this being. And, um, and the first thing he said, I was sitting next to a woman who I, was the girlfriend of a DJ I'd hired at the radio station in Montreal. I had no idea she'd be in India. It was like insane. That I didn't, she had no evinced any interest in spirituality. And there she is sitting next to me. And he just looks at the two of us. He goes, friends from Canada? And that was the first thing he said. I was like, I didn't. I, I, I. <laughs> I was tongue-tied then. And then everything... Um, Everything proceeded from that point on. Um, the how did I get here was a big theme for me. Holy shit, how did I get? I couldn't believe it. Because this was somebody, you know, it's hard to describe somebody that actually no ego. There was nothing like we're talking now, you know, and I'm saying things. And, you recognize and you say things back to me, you know, we are acting on our projections a lot and, you know, like that. Here was something was like, there was nothing bouncing back, zero. It was like more like being in, in a pool of something or a computer that just did whatever it was supposed to for you. Like, had no interest in me. He was not a me that had an interest in the me whatsoever. If you can imagine that there's somebody like that. I, I can, but I know a lot of people uh, can't. So yeah. do you think, you know, this is a question that was on my mind. Um, when you hear the word enlightened, and you, you, you've you related a lot of stories about Neem Karoli Baba on the podcast, and... Mm. And uh, you alluded to something earlier, but another thing you talk about a lot, and, and Ramdas has talked a lot about, is him just knowing these things, like these details of people's lives, these people's biographies, you know, shit in their personal lives, and, and all of these things that he would have absolutely no way to know. Um, there's no logical, ego-based, shall we say, explanation for it. Um, did you... Or do you consider him to be an enlightened being? And and related question, perhaps, how do you explain him knowing all of these things um, over and over and over and over again? Because, you know, I I have met some pretty far out people in my life. I've met some pretty, uh, you know, spiritually advanced people, shall we say, but I've never met anyone like that. And you have. So just if you could talk about that a bit. Well, to say right off the bat, I wouldn't know because I'm not that, right? Mm -hmm. um, but certainly, 
I've met a lot of people, uh, spiritual, holy people, and I've never met anybody like that myself. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, enlightenment is such, I mean, everybody, you know, there's people walking around today teaching in the West saying they're enlightened, so it doesn't have a hell of a lot of weight to it, that word. It's kind of like guru, right? But in the it's Buddhist the, tradition, yeah. you know, when, we, when you talk about enlightened being a genuinely no zero ego, ego, ego dissolution, and yeah. that's what you're describing, right? Yeah, Siddha, not a saint. Yeah. And the only other being that I met that I could equate with that is the 16th Karmapa. Do you know who that is? The Dalai Lama? Karmapa, no. So okay. there's the Kar Dalai Lama, then the Panchen Lama, then the Karmapa in the order of importance of Tibetan lamas. Um, there's a 17th who's like 30-odd years old, 32 right now, who comes to the West a lot, who's incredible. And he's the tulku of the 16th. But the 16th was known to be a siddha as well, a bodhisattva. And I met him, and when I... And he was doing a ceremony, and everybody got a chance to walk right in front of him, you know, and get a scarf, you know, silk scarf, kata. And when I got, you know, a number of people away, six feet away or something, I got this wave, and I went, holy shit, Maharaji, same thing. Whatever that thing is, which we can't name, he was in that thing. There's a great book stories of the Karmapa, and I can't remember the exact title, but you, you should find it and put it up in your show notes. It's a wonderful book. That along with uh, Love Everyone, by the way, which is our story. Do you have that book? No, I don't. Oh, you love it, Zach. It's stories, our stories of being with Maharaji, Westerner. And A Miracle of Love is a great book Ramdas put together. It has stories as well, but a lot of it's from Indians, so it gets a little bit colored by their interpretation of what he said. With us, we just wrote exactly what he said in diaries and stuff. Mm -hmm. And so it's very accurate, but also from the point of view, people can relate. We were just like everybody else, you know, cynical Westerners who had no idea about anything. So, anyhow, uh, a, a great book. So, those are the only two beings that came from that same fabric, as far as I mean. I met also Ananda Maima, who was a completely free being, as far as I could tell. And, uh, but she was like mother. It's sort of different. I can't explain it. Siddhima, same thing. Mother, Sri Aurobindo, I met her as well. Incredible. Uh, so, and the source of it with Maharaji? I guess when you become, in the non-dual sense, part of the fabric of whatever you want to call. We just did a retreat in Ojai, by the way, uh, California. We do these Ramdas immersion retreats, and we have a specific theme and everything. The theme of this was this: what is around the state of Brahman. And Brahman, I love that word because I have no association with it. God I don't like that word, but Brahman. So we went through this whole thing. So uh, of what that is, and so many of those attributes were I could associate with with Maharaji, and uh, I suppose that when you're in that non-dual state, 
everything is accessible. Everything. Mm-hmm. And you, you know, it's not like you're choosing to do anything. You're not, you're not doing anything. But whatever needs to happen through you to anybody to get them open, get them back to to yoga, to yoga, it happens. And that seemed to be what was happening with Mahaji. He didn't. You never could think that he was actually. Uh, for instance, I went to see him once because I my passport, my Canadian passport, was running out. And I needed a new, uh, a new passport. And I had the guy who owned the records, uh, the radio station, uh, was uh, a, you know, he was a friend. And I told him he was going to India. He gave me this, the ambassador uh, from, to Canada, to India rather, from Canada. He gave me his contact. So I got in touch and said, "Can I come?" And he said, "Yeah, we'll get you straightened out. No problem." A little different than what goes on nowadays, right? Especially with America. Uh, anyhow, he invited. So I went to see Maharaji, and I was going to go the next day to Delhi. And Maharaji says, well, he said a few things, but one in particular, he says, "Did you just get teachings from a Tibetan Lama?" And I go, "No, there was this Buddhist that was night Tibet." I said, "No, never met in Tibet in my life." He said, you didn't get teachings for, you know, in half an hour he took you in the room? Something like that. I go, no, Maharaji. He said, okay, jow. He threw me out. <laughs> I went to Delhi. I went to lunch. Guy, Jim, James George, great. He was a Buddhist scholar. I knew that. I said, because some friend of mine had told me that Canada was allowing uh, Tibetan refugees, there was a lot of refugees at that time, to come to Canada. And he said, yeah, yeah, now that's happening. As a matter of fact, they went like this. And out of a room walked Kalu Rinpoche, one of the greatest lamas of the last century, and a retinue of monks. I tell you, I mean, that was like, okay, immediate acid trip. I thought I was going to collapse. It was like, how could he, how could he know? I, and I had lunch with this Lama, and then some CBC, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation reporters, took me into a room. They were going to interview him, and he got bored with them, and they said, why don't you ask a question? As soon as that happened, he, got, he totally contacted me, and he gave me Dharma talk for half an hour through questions that I asked. Yeah. Okay. I was on acid for about a week without taking acid after yeah. that. So uh, I needed that. I needed it on so many levels. I mean, I, ne- I needed it to break my mind apart, obviously. And he had done other stuff, tons of other stuff on a day-to-day with everybody that showed you, you are not your mind. You are not your senses. You are something beyond that. And also, I got these incredible teachings from this Tibetan Lama that were important, that have stayed with me my whole life. How does that happen? Why? Who? I mean, I didn't care. I was just like, wow. You know, so this comes from another place that it's not possible to think about. That's for sure. So those, I'd like to dig into that a little more. Like these early trips to India, you know, you mentioned being angry uh, let down by 
that's my word, not yours, but seems to me somewhat let down by the promise offered to you by Western society, you know, as, as a young man. Those early trips to India, your experiences with Maharaji, how did they change you? And what are some of the most important things that, that Maharaji either taught or just showed you? Well, it's all that moment that I just said when he walked out of that room and it all was within seconds of uh, understanding that I was home. I was finished. So it was mostly his being. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, the, the powerful current that came from this being, uh, the rest of my life was just, uh, okay, I'm going to have to run off whatever karma. I mean, intellectually, that was you know something I thought of later. I didn't think of it in that, but more, uh, okay. I, I mean, I can't e- express more profoundly what home means i mean you know and those of you listeners who've taken it i'm not i'm not advocating psychedelics although you know they were extraordinarily important for me i don't think i would have had that and ramdas says the same thing he wouldn't have had that understanding of this being without that understanding of the interconnectedness of everything through psychedelics and whatever else um yeah that that second, that one second, it was, you know, it's like a flash. And that, the feeling of complete immersion in a place that I had never experienced before, uh, that's lasted, that's never gone away. And so it's informed everything, my whole life from that moment was that second, that flash. And then, uh, you know, he certainly, I mean, I got teachings, you know. I asked him how to meditate. He said, as you may know from listening to Mind Rolling around us, how to meditate. Meditate, I I just wanted a mantra, right? (laughs) I didn't want anything big. Meditate like Christ. When he was nailed to the cross, he felt love, not pain. Okay. That was way beyond anything. Yeah. Is that still reverberating for me? Yeah. So there was that as well. You know, is the fact that, you know, the only thing he ever said for us to do was love everyone, serve everyone, and remember God and tell the truth? That's it. That was the teaching. Everything else was like we got into Vipassana meditation. He didn't tell us to go do it. He'd say... Are you going to the course? In English, you go, course? No, but okay, I'll go. I don't know. You know, We were just fumbling around 20-odd-year-olds, right? That became a foundational practice for 90% of the people that saw him back then, a few hundred. And think of it, there's only a few hundred Westerners, tops, that saw him, met him. And that practice, and now we're involved with you know our friend Sharon Salzberg, Jack Cornfield, Joseph Goldstein, and you know they're so close. And on their side, they didn't meet Maharaji, but their hearts were affected big time by him. So yeah, profound, very profound. So we're we're running out of time, and I'm I'm through probably fifteen mm. percent of my questions for you. So I'm going to have to jump ahead <laughs> a little bit. Um, yeah, yeah. 
Let, let's let's spend some time in the present. I mean, one of the things I was wondering about when I was putting the other questions is, what is your spiritual life slash your spiritual practice like today? I mean, what's a typical day in the life of Raghu Marcus? And, and do you have any meditation practice or do you have any kind of regular spiritual practice? What, mm. what What's that like for you? Well, it's, as I was just mentioning, the... Buddhist Vipassana, which is insight meditation, has been a ground practice for me all these years. And, you know, there's 10-day courses people can take where you get really solidified in the practice. But the biggest uh, practice that we brought back from India is uh, chant bhakti yoga, you know, devotional yoga through chant. Krishnadas exemplifies that. So the reason why people like him and he gets such a big audience is because he's doing it for himself. He's not entertaining anybody. And you, you come along the, on the ride with him. And people like that. You know, that's honesty. You know? uh, so chant, you know, I have, we just did this past weekend. You know, I live in North Carolina, Asheville. And we have, you know, a nice uh, satsang developed. And if you ask me what's the number one thing that anybody should do, certainly being able to get a grasp on your mind through a meditative practice so that you're not being absolutely devastated by that monkey mind. And witness practice, awareness, mindfulness practices are important as well. Uh, And above everything, satsang getting together with like-minded people goes a long way to help support relating with who you truly are rather than who you think you are so uh when the buddha was asked you know there's three refuges in the buddha dharma spirit the law of the universe and sangha which is satsang which is community of like-minded people they say what is the most important, he said, satsang, sangha, satsang. So I, that is something I highly recommend. It's it's the probably the biggest part of my life now. I mean, the foundational meditative practice and mindfulness and chant, but satsang, yeah. And you know, I'm fortunate through the work I do through Love Serve Remember, Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org and the podcast network, Be Here Now Network. Uh, it's about what we can do to help each other as much as possible, serve, what we can do to get our own lives straightened out so that we're not polarized. I mean, you're living, you live mostly in Thailand? I live in Thailand, yes. You're missing a lot of fun over here. (laughs) Yeah, uh, every once in a while I flick on CNN and I can see all the fun I'm missing. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, that uh, so what is going on is not only polarizing, you know, this country, but polarizing inside ourselves. So mm. it's really a very very tough situation. So the more that we can work on that, and so I, I uh, you know, I have been spending a lot of time on that, and working on something called from the movie of me to the movie of we, working with uh, Duncan Trussell. We're doing some I stuff. I love Duncan that. Trussell. Yeah, Duncan yeah. is great. So, yeah, so it's uh, basically the work is around getting us uh, 
connected as possible to that place behind who we think we are and more in touch with who we really are and being able to help anybody. Yeah. I think we started this conversation um, speaking a little bit about the negative effects of media exposure and billboards and things. And you just alluded to, uh, to what's happening in, uh, in America recently. And in some ways the West more generally with, you know, hyper-nationalism and polarized politics and stuff. I mean, after the most recent presidential election, I took a serious news detox diet, whatever you want to call it. I kind of just turned away for quite a long time and I kind of haven't, I've, I've severely re- restricted my intake of that kind of information coming in. Uh, obviously that's a lot more difficult to do from where you're sitting in North Carolina. Um, but what is your take on that? I mean, do you make an effort to sort of disconnect from the insanity in, in politics and all the rest or what is your sort of take on that? Because to be frank with you, part of the reason I think I'm in Thailand and I've spent the majority of my life, uh, the majority of my adult life traveling and places like India and Thailand and the rest is I want, I want to get away from a lot of that noise. Um, but what's your take on that? I just did a thing with uh, Ram Dass and Jack Cornfield and Duncan and Trudy Goodman in uh, at a big conference called the Summit in L.A. And and so Ramdas was skyped in from Maui, and somebody in the audience asked the question, that exact kind of question, you know, what do we do about this? Thing? Mm-hmm. His first thing was, stop watching TV. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, yeah, but if you're running from it and you're going like that, then you're kind of not acting uh, responsibly as a citizen, yeah. really. So there's that aspect too, and also, uh, as Ramdas says, you know, Trump, Trump, Trumpy, Trumpy, is showing us true nature, showing us the way we react, mm-hmm. our the polarization, the anger, the separate, all of it. So it's pretty good work to do, and yet becoming a news junkie is probably counterproductive as well. So I try and get to some kind of balance where I'm, I'm not involved in every second. On, on the other hand, it's true when you are here, if you're, if you're looking at social media, or looking at the news or anything, you're, gonna, you're going to receive some pretty tough stuff. You know? And it's how you react to it and the kind of work you're doing on yourself so you're not propagating this, perpetuating it. That would be the trick more than, you know, going like, okay, I'm going to sequester myself so that I don't have to deal with this. So you got to, you know, that's a problem. That's as much of a problem as, you know, the other side of the coin, which is I'm going to suck up every piece of negative news here, you know. So there's a, you know, the middle path and we are citizens of this country and we need to do whatever we can to at least stop our own anger, hatred, separation. Are you optimistic about the future? Well, if you, you know, if you look at, uh, take a big historical view, these, you know, strife and turmoil and dictators and egomaniacs and countries, you know, ignorance goes on no matter what. And uh, I I don't think about that 
I mean, I do because I have children and grandchildren and all that, but I do. The biggest message for me is what Ramdas represents, what we do from Love Serve. And that's straighten your insides out and get yourself straight so that you can radiate uh, love, compassion, and wisdom, and not fear, anger, and separation. So once, if enough people do that, then, yeah, we have, uh, we can look to a uh, more positive outcome in the future. So before I let you go, could you talk a little that bit about... That sounds Pollyannish, by the way, so <laughs> bullshit. Do the best you can, okay? <laughs> and try not to be so self-involved and start there. There we go. Yeah, I like that better. That's good. That's good. Um, well, before I let you go, Raghu, could you talk a little bit uh, for the people listening about uh, what is the Love Serve Remember Foundation and what are the goals of that foundation? So it's it's dedicated to the preservation and continuation of the teachings we got with Neem Karoli Baba and through Ramdas and now through Krishnas and through all of our other friends like Jack Cornfield and Sharon Salzberg and Lama Suryadas and you know, we have quite a coterie of them, and under the Love Serve Remember Foundation is BeHereNowNetwork.com and Ramdas.org, and it's to share as much. Ramdas's central purpose these days is to do this sharing and get it out on the platforms that next generation people are more involved with, from smartphones and apps and you know all of that. So you know, we're doing we're doing all of that, and uh, it's really to make it available exactly that moment that I described to you when Maharaji came out that door and I realized home, what home is. And, and the, the enormous relief and connection to something that is not my mind, ego, or senses. You know, just that simple thing. If we can get that shared out there, then, yeah, in terms of future, you know, we can feel like Love Serve Remember, you know, has has had a role in uh, in shifting some of this very tough stuff that's going on. Yeah, you've given me a, a new, nice new perspective on the famous Ramdas quote. What is it? In, in the end, we're always just we're only just walking each other home. You can take home to me yeah, a lot of different exactly. things. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and that's. Not to put a commercial in here, his new book is called Walking Each Other right. Home with Mirabai Bush, and that's a wonderful, wonderful book to give you a real glimpse, aside from all the talk about transition and, and so on, but also gives a wonderful glimpse of what it's like for Ramdas, who's been in a wheelchair for almost 22 years, 22 years at this point, and is the most positive being I, you know, that I've ever met, you know, within those kinds of circumstances. He's living what he talks, what he has talked about. Yeah, there's a so, really beautiful new new documentary out on Netflix about Ramdas. The name is the exact name escapes me now. Do you remember what the exact name going is? Going home. That's right, going home. Yeah, I'd recommend anyone to watch that. It's truly inspiring. Really beautiful little piece of work. Um, mm. As a fellow podcaster, very briefly, I have to ask you this, and as one who hosts a couple of uh, podcasts, I really enjoy. What is your preparation process like for conversations like this? Do you have a very strict list of questions you want to get to, or are you more open to things kind of just flowing? Both. Hmm. I do, you know, I'll have some talking points. Before, you know, I may, you know, I'll spend a little bit of time 
just finding out who that other person is and what they're, you know, giving me some idea of the kinds of things that interest me in that other person. Sometimes, you know, many times they might have a book, so I can't read every word of every book, but I'm really a fast reader and I can go through and, oh yeah, this is interesting. We'll tell you, no, no, pick it out. And so I'll do that. There are some people I don't like Duncan. I don't need anything. Mm. And he's so, you know, he's got that wild mind, you know, we can just <laughs> take off and we know each other so well now. It's just easy. And, and David Silver is another one like that, who I used to do as a partner. We used to do podcasts together when in the first year now we do them occasionally. So, yeah, it depends on who it is. But I do like to have, uh, really get to know who it is that I'm talking to and what interests me in, about that person. Yeah, that's kind of my philosophy, too. Yeah. And for anyone listening, yeah, Duncan Trussell of the great uh, Duncan Trussell Family Hour podcast, which is another one of my favorites. Yeah, lots of, lots of great podcasts out there. So before you go today, Raghu, something I like to do in my podcast is I'll, I'll ask you to complete these sentences with just a couple of words and the first thing that comes to mind, if you don't mind. Mm. The trait I am most drawn to in the opposite sex is? The goddess within that being. Love is? Sharing. I would most like to be remembered as? A great sharer. <laughs> That's beautiful. Thank you very much for your time today, Raghu. Thanks, Zach. It's been great. I'm going to come to visit you in Chiang Mai one of these days. have it my friends i hope you enjoyed that episode that conversation with ragu i really hope to have him back on the podcast sometime and uh yeah he's a pretty interesting human being be sure to follow him on instagram and social media and if you haven't already just to emphasize again please check out his podcast mind rolling before i let you go today i'll remind you that ratings reviews subscriptions are absolutely crucial for any podcast success including this one so if you haven't already please take 26 seconds out of your day be sure to subscribe to Humans in Love and leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice. And just before I let you go, I'll remind you that life is short, so let's all just enjoy the hell out of 2019. Happy to be talking to you again, friends. I'll talk to you again next week.